0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And you may not know it, but a major red-letter day is nearly upon us. Monday, August 26th, brings Women's Equality Day, commemorating the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. That's the one which granted women the right to vote. That amendment was passed on August 26th, 1920. So this week, we're bringing you a show dedicated to some pretty wondrous women out there. Mother's. We first aired this show right around Mother's Day, but we've added a few new touches, so stay tuned. We'll follow a woman in her 40s before and after she gives birth to her very first child.
1: It's a wonderful feeling, but it is absolutely pure exhaustion.
0: We'll talk with moms about what it's like raising multiple kids when one has autism.
2: There are times where she's, you know, like another mommy to him. We'll explore the issue of international surrogacy.
3: We contacted the doctor in less than a year. We already had our first child.
0: And we'll look at a different kind of mother, a mother load of gold in the old line
4: estate. There was a gentleman here in Montgomery County. His name was Jack Nelson. He paid enough gold to make wedding rings for himself and his wife.
0: But first... It's pretty obvious that being a mother comes with a million different experiences and stories and attitudes and opinions. But despite their differences, might there be some similarities, you know, some some trends in terms of how today's moms view themselves and their roles? Well, I recently visited the Pew Research Center in Northwest DC.
5: Are you Rebecca? I am. Hi, I'm Kim. Nice hey, to meet nice you. To you. Yeah.
0: Where I met a woman. Okay.
5: We're gonna go right in here, Okay. That works. Totally.
0: Who says they're very well maybe.
5: Her name is Kim Parker. And I'm associate director of the Pew Research Center's Social and Demographic Trends Project.
0: And the social and demographic trend Parker just finished studying is all about moms. Well, and dads too. We interviewed about
5: 2,000 adults nationwide and got their attitudes about their work
0: lives, their family lives, and sort of the
5: struggle of balancing those two.
0: And as Kim Parker and her co-author Wendy Wang went about analyzing those 2,000 interviews, Parker says one thing that surprised her was, compared with a similar study in 2007, more moms now say their ideal situation is to work full-time. It went from 20% in
5: 2007 to 32% in 2012. And then when we looked a little bit deeper to find out which mothers in particular were showing that change in attitudes, it was unmarried moms and moms who were struggling economically. So it sort of suggested that women who were saying their ideal situation is to work full-time, that may not be their ideal situation because they think that would be the most fun, but because they think that's the way that they're going to be able to provide for their families. So it was sort of people, particularly with the respondents who said that they had trouble making ends meet, almost half of those women said that their ideal situation was to work full-time. Then when you look at women who say that they live comfortably, a relatively small share say that they want to work full-time. So that did suggest some sort of economic component there.
0: But at the same time, it seems the public remains conflicted about what's best for young children. I understand that only about 15-16% say the ideal situation for a young child is to have a mom who works full-time.
5: Yep. And that's the conflict. And that's the sort of contradiction that is very difficult, I think, for people to come to terms with. Because as you said, a, a relatively small share think that the best thing for a young child is to have a mom that works full time. And even when you ask moms that work full time, they don't think that, you know, in a general sense, that's the best thing for a young child. Although I'm sure they think they're doing the best that they can for their own child. Everybody has to find their own balance. But Yeah, most people think that the best thing for a young child is to have a mom that works either part-time or doesn't work at all. And we have found, you know, looking at people's actual experiences in the labor force, men place more priority on having a high-paying job than women do, and women place more priority on having job flexibility. So, again, that speaks to the sort of desire to, you know, maybe to be working, but to be able to also attend to all the needs of your kids, whether they're very young and, you know, need that hands-on attention or whether they're school age and you want to be able to go to their concerts and their events and drive the carpools and all that.
0: Um, Something I thought was really interesting is that when it comes to mothers and fathers, talking about how how to balance work and family life, there's really no significant gap in the attitudes between mothers and fathers.
5: Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting, too. And we actually did ask mothers and fathers, and we found that the share of mothers and fathers saying that it's difficult for them to balance work and family life was almost identical. And we also found when we asked mothers and fathers if they would prefer to be home raising their children, but they need to work because they need the income. Again, there was no gender difference there. So fathers were just as likely as mothers to say that they'd like to be home with their kids, but they have to work because they need the income.
0: And I noticed that uh, about 8% of mothers and 3% of fathers say they spend too much time with their kids.
5: <laughs> yeah, and dads were more likely to say that they spend too little time with their kids. And we know from looking at the amount of time, because we also analyzed how men and women spend their time, that even though women make up almost half of the labor force now, so they're almost equally represented in the labor force with men, but men do spend more hours per week on paid work. And again, I think that's because women still while women do more in paid work now, they're still carrying a heavier load at home in terms of childcare and housework.
0: In the study, you also asked women and men to rate themselves mm-hmm. as parents. Can you talk about what you found there?
5: Sure. We found that um, mothers give themselves slightly higher ratings than fathers, but overall, most parents say they're doing an excellent or a very good job of raising their kids. We also found that working mothers give themselves slightly higher ratings than non-working mothers which was kind of interesting. I don't really have an explanation for that. But, um, yeah, there was a significant difference there as well. When our report came out, it was around the you know, 50th anniversary of The Feminine Mystique, and also it was the same week that Cheryl Sandberg's book Lean In came out. So it was just an interesting time. And it's always a topic that, you know, causes a lot of interest and conversation and everyone has their own stories. And it's obviously an area that's still very unsettled and dynamic in terms of women deciding what's best and, you know, formulating their views. And so I can't wait to do it again and find out what changes next.
0: (laughs) Well, Kim Parker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
5: Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.
0: Kim Barker is the associate director of the Pew Research Center's Social and Demographic Trends Project. For more on her study of parenting and work-family balance, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Mama's- woman we're going to hear from next never thought she'd have to think about balancing work and parenting twanda washington was in her early 40s she was focused on her career as a high-powered regional sales manager for at&t and then all of a sudden there she was with a positive pregnancy test just shy of nine months later emily berman met twanda who recorded this radio diary as she experienced her first few weeks with her brand new son
1: if you would have told me that I would be having a baby, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. I had accepted the fact that I was 40 years old and would not be a mother. Today is April 16th, the day before I go into the hospital to give birth to Patrick Ramon Amos, Jr. I'm here with my fiance Patrick Amos, Sr. We're having our first child together, but you are not a first-time parent.
6: So I have two sons from my first marriage. Uh, Both are college students. I never thought that I would start over again, at least not in that way. I feel blessed to be his father.
1: That's why I love you. My family flew in from Chicago, so we had a total of six people supporting us. This is Pat's mom and it's Aunt Emma. My dad and my mom actually drove up from Chicago. We had made up in our minds early on whatever it took, a second mortgage or whatever, if he had to sell off the family values, we was going to make this trip. So here's the baby's room. He has so much stuff. He's so blessed. The night before the actual delivery, my father called Everyone in the room, and he just said, We are going to pray. We all grabbed hands, and he said a really, really nice prayer that PJ would be healthy. I will have a great delivery. I will have a speedy recovery. He prayed that we would definitely have the support we need and help raising PJ. And he really just asked God to watch over his life.
7: Hey, this is Mikey. I'm Twanda's little brother. All right, so we're just sitting in the waiting room, just waiting right now. As the door keeps opening and closing, we keep watching and... Nope, that's not him.
6: Oh my God, he is gorgeous. <laughs> so everybody meets us back in the labor and delivery suite. Hey
1: mom, scooter, let me see. I'm talking about how much he looks just like his father. I it is. I could not stop staring at him. It was like, you know, here you you've never met this person and you have so much love for them immediately. You just you just fall in love. Today, PJ is 13 days old. I have survived two weeks of being a mother. My house is upside down. My kitchen has baby bottles everywhere. He is not even eight pounds, and he has taken over my entire house. He is actually holding his bottle. He's done it twice already. I'm like, wait a minute. What five-day-old baby holds their own bottle? So, I'm like, okay, slow down because there will not be another baby coming after you. So, you don't have to really develop too quickly there. Good morning. I'm sitting here with PJ about 3.30 in the morning. And I just had my first diaper explosion minus the diaper. As I was changing him. Next thing I know, a green volcano erupted and it went about five feet across the room and I dodged it like, oh, it's amazing. I heard about it, but I've never experienced it and I just got my first poop. He softened my heart so much. You know, you want to give this little person the world and protect them. I'm starting to learn him. He's starting to learn me. It's been a great trip so far.
0: That was Twanda Washington of Upper Marlboro, Maryland, and her newborn son, PJ. Her story was produced by Emily Berman. Time for a break, but when we get back, the toll bullying can take on a mother and her child.
8: My children sometimes
0: don't want to go to school because of it. And how autism can change a mother's approach to parenting.
9: They had to grow up a lot faster than children who don't deal with a disability in the family.
0: That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5.
9: WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we're revisiting some stories we did earlier this year all about motherhood. And in this next story, we're going to hear from women who became mothers by traveling across the globe. For more than a decade, China has been the top country for international adoptions to the United States. Since 1999, American families have adopted more than 60,000 Chinese babies and toddlers. But that's all changing as China has tightened adoption rules in the past few years. Jacob Fenston brings us the story of some local moms and their adopted children from the world's most populous nation.
2: This is the picture that I got of of Sarah when I was told that she would be my daughter. Um,
10: Lisa Reff of Bethesda traveled to China in 2002 to adopt her first daughter, Sarah. Sarah was 10 months old, in the photo, a naked, bright-eyed baby.
2: So that's kind of the information. You get a picture and then you get some medical information.
10: Ref is a single mom, and she says she chose to adopt from China in part because back then it was easier for a single person than doing a domestic adoption.
2: You knew what the paperwork was, you knew what the timing was. The Chinese adoption
10: system was transparent. The babies were healthy. So there was a rush of Americans adopting Chinese children, close to 8,000 in 2005. That's the year ref returned to China to adopt her second daughter.
2: Most people stayed at a hotel called the White Swan, which we affectionately called the White Stork because it was just filled with Caucasian parents and Chinese children.
10: But starting in 2006, adoptions dropped precipitously as China changed its policies to promote more internal adoptions. The result in the United States is that kids currently in elementary school, there's a uniquely large cohort of Chinese-American girls. Why girls?
11: Well, China has a one-child
10: policy. There is culturally a predisposition towards boys. Chuck Johnson, president of the National Council for Adoption. You're seeing, as a result of that
12: social policy, when families have a girl, that she's at
10: a higher risk for abandonment than, let's, let's say, a boy would be. Chinese families can't just go to an orphanage and give up a child, so parents often leave baby girls in public places where they'll be found quickly and taken to an orphanage. That was the case for Lisa Reff's two daughters, Katie and Sarah.
13: I was, I think, not sealed clothes, but put in a box because I remember I was near the orphanage. My mom told me that I was left in front of a school in a box.
10: That's Katie. She's now 9 years old. Sarah's 11. The story about the box, that's all they know about their birth parents. But this summer, the family's planning a trip back to China. They'll hit all the tourist sites.
13: I'm most excited about learning the culture and tasting the food. I like the dumplings and the spring rolls. buns. Plus the pork buns.
10: But they'll also visit the orphanages where the girls spent their first few months. Katie's interested in seeing a particular piece of furniture she knows from a baby photo.
13: The red couch, they took a picture of all the little babies and me on a couch.
10: These heritage tours, as they're called, are pretty common. It's a way for adoptive parents to help their kids understand where they're from. Janice Morris, a mother from Arlington, took her daughter three years ago.
9: It was an opportunity to see what life would have been like for her in China and for girls in general, both good and bad.
10: At the time, her daughter Claire was 10.
9: It was sort of
13: sad because I saw how, how lucky I am to be here in America. But I also was a little happy to see where I came from.
10: They visited the orphanage and they also went to her finding place the farmer's market where Claire's birth parents left her.
13: There was a lot and a lot of rice farms there. So if I was still there, I would have to do like a lot of um, growing rice. and yeah.
10: These trips can be important for adopted children as they get older and start to grapple with questions of identity. That's according to Ellen Singer, a social worker at the Center for Adoption Support and Education in Burtonsville, Maryland.
0: Sometimes it helps fill in the missing pieces to the questions that they have in their minds. And so for some
8: children, it's extremely powerful and healing.
10: She says it's also important to tell children the story of where they were born and how they were adopted, even if that story includes potentially difficult elements like being left in a box.
9: We always counsel parents how to do it from an age-appropriate perspective. You know, what you tell a three-year-old
0: is different than what you tell an older child.
10: As the children adopted from China in the early 2000s get older, some will, of course, have more questions about their background. But for these kids, it may be hard to get good answers. There are no records to help track down birth parents. Even things like exact birth dates are uncertain. Still, many adoptive parents, like Lisa Ref, are making an effort to connect their kids to the culture. Ref's daughter Katie takes Chinese dance lessons, and she's learning Mandarin.
13: Ni hao means, like, how are you? And then wo hen hao is usually the regular response, which is, I am fine, thank you.
10: I'm Jacob Fenston.
0: This story was informed by the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the network by visiting metroconnection.org PIN. So as we just heard, the road to motherhood can be quite the journey. But experiencing motherhood, being a mom, that can be quite the adventure too. For instance, let's say you're a mother whose child is diagnosed with autism. From that point on, you and your family are often heading down a twisty and turny path of doctor's visits, therapy sessions, and other time-consuming interventions. And if you have other kids, kids who are so-called typical you have the added challenge of trying to find a balance. Tara Boyle brings us the stories of several moms who are experiencing just that.
14: Hunter and Kyla McLaughlin just got home from school, and they're blowing off steam on their backyard trampoline.
2: No, Kyle said she's going to hit me. Because I'm trying to do back. Oh, Hunter, she doesn't want to hit you. While she's they're
14: bickering, just like any other siblings you might meet in this suburban part of Bel Air, Maryland. Their mom, Shelly McLaughlin, says Hunter and Kyla are close, best friends.
2: They're a year apart, and in some ways, they're almost like twins. Hunter is 11 and has Asperger syndrome, a form of
14: autism. For years, that diagnosis impacted every dimension of the family.
2: He was very impulsive as a younger child. And if it came to mind, he just reacted and did it.
14: If they were out in public, like at the grocery store, that impulsiveness could be a big problem.
2: He would take off. I would be in the checkout line. He would bolt out the door into the parking lot. And he was not coming back unless I went and physically grabbed him.
14: McLaughlin, a single mom, knew how stressful this was for her. But it was only recently that she started to realize how autism
2: has affected Kyla. There are times where she's you know, like another mommy to him. Uh, You know, I remember times where he was having meltdowns and he would just trash his room. And then when he was calm, I would go in to talk to him and Kyla would walk in and start picking the things up in his room. McLaughlin
14: says these experiences have made her daughter a more compassionate person. But being a sibling of a child with autism sometimes means Kyla had to fight for her mom's attention.
2: In a way, she almost got kind of stuck developmentally in that during those critical developmental periods, I couldn't give her the attention she needed because I was so busy trying to deal with the daily crises that were going on with Hunter and his explosions and his meltdowns and running away. McLaughlin says slowly over time, things have
14: gotten easier. These days, Hunter and Kyla like to cook together and make movies on Hunter's iPad. And the fact that their life is calming down a bit, that makes a lot of sense to
11: this woman. My name is Kathleen Atmore, and I'm a developmental neuropsychologist at the Center for Autism Spectrum Disorders at Children's National Medical Center.
14: Atmore is also a mom. She has four children, including a set of twin boys. One of the twins was diagnosed with autism at 18
11: months. My son with autism would have just a lot of trouble handling frustration. I think that was the first thing I saw. Even his cry was different.
14: Atmore knows how all-consuming autism can be for parents and kids, but now that her sons are in their teens, she also has a longer-term perspective to share with families just starting on this path.
11: I have gone from the terrified mother to the capable professional in one day, and I think that experience has helped me understand that every difficult period evolves into something else that, you know, might still be challenging, but it gets better. Atmore
14: says she advises parents to carve out one hour, one evening a week for each child in the family.
11: She follows this practice with her own kids. It's more than one hour now, it's usually between eight and ten, that I just force myself to sit down. It's really been hugely helpful to simply sit down.
14: 25 miles from Kathleen Atmore's D.C. office in Woodbridge, Virginia, Katherine Walker has been working to find a similar sort of equilibrium with her own children. Right now, she's meeting her 9-year-old son Adam at the bus stop.
13: My name's Adam, and I'm a good guy.
14: Adam is on the autism spectrum. His diagnosis is pervasive developmental delay not otherwise specified. Walker says she started noticing something was wrong when Adam was 18 months old.
9: And by the 24-month checkup... He was functioning at a 12-month level. For years, Walker
14: devoted all her energy to Adam's medical care and therapy. And her daughters, twins Sophia and Miriam, had to come along for the
9: ride. Part of their childhood was definitely, uh, I say, stolen. Because they had to grow up a lot faster than children who um, don't deal with uh, disability in the family.
14: Walker says all that intensive focus has paid off for Adam, but now it's time to bring more balance into her daughter's lives. At the moment, Sophia and Miriam are playing kickball with Adam and some neighborhood kids. But tonight, the girls will go have one-on-one time with their mom, while Adam stays home with their grandfather.
9: I've been doing Girl Scouts with them, and I'm the troop leader. Just those things that are mother to daughter kind of experiences and traditions that I'm trying to pass on.
14: Walker says she now feels her son and her daughters are getting what they need from her. Getting to this point has been hard, she says, but it's been worth it.
9: These kids are exactly what I prayed for. Even with the the trials and tribulations with Adam, I am so blessed with my three children. And I love it. I absolutely love it.
0: I'm Tara Boyle. This story was also informed by the Public Insight Network. And if you missed our plug for PIN earlier in the show, you can learn more at metroconnection.org slash PIN. So clearly, motherhood can come with all sorts of challenges. And the woman we'll hear from next has been dealing with a very specific challenge, an age-old one really: bullying at school. We'll hear more in On the Coast. Our regular segment in which Brian Russo brings us the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Brian recently spoke with this Maryland mom, we'll call her Rachel, and her son, whom we'll call Bobby. And Rachel says she's found that many adults, even teachers, often have no idea how to handle bullies.
8: I um, have been dealing a lot of with issues at school with uh, children saying things or um, spreading rumors about my children. And it's been hard for me to deal with. And um, it's actually taken a toll on our family. My children sometimes don't want to go to school because of it. When was
12: the first time that, that this came up? Is this, was this something that just started happening this year?
8: They've been dealing, my older son has been dealing with it for several years. Uh, it started when he was in the fifth grade with somebody just telling him that uh, nobody likes him. He doesn't want to be his friend. Uh, I believe it started when one child didn't like that my son was a best friend of one of his friends. And he started telling kids that uh, nobody likes him, uh, don't hang out with him, he's uncool. Unfortunately, that spread through the bus and my son's peers in the neighborhood started to believe that. And if we fast forward now, I found out that that kid that first began bothering my son has bothered many kids Mm -hmm. and has never been disciplined for it.
12: I want to turn to Bobby for a second. Bobby, tell me what it felt like for you before you ever had to deal with any bullying of your own how it felt for you when you were at home and you would hear your parents and your older brother talking about what was happening to him.
13: He started to withdraw from the family. He started to become more alone, liked more solitude. and We still hung out, but he didn't like like to go outside as much.
12: So when did things start happening in class for you? I mean, I know you're you're a few years younger than your brother. When did it feel like bullying was happening to you?
13: I'm pretty sure it was in third grade because I had this really good friend. And uh, I made him my friend near the beginning of the year. Uh, so then near the middle of the year, this kid came along and he had like a whole group of people with him. And whenever I tried to hang out with them, they're like, no, we're part of this club and you can't join. So they wouldn't let me play with him. So he just stopped, like, hanging out with me as much. And we stopped going over to each other's houses. And then we stopped, like, talking during the school.
12: Mm -hmm. Has it ever gotten to a point where they call you bad names or they've ever, like, gotten physical and, and pushed you around or anything like that?
13: It's never gotten physical, but they have been... Like telling me stuff to my face, and it can take really take a toll on a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not like just one thing; and it just goes away like within the week. It's just like they continue to do it, and it can and it can make people lose friends and make them feel terrible about themselves.
12: What happens when a kid in your class, or even yourself personally, tell their teacher or tell? any teacher in your school that bullying or harassment is taking place. What do they say?
13: I think personally that it's not that easy to tell a teacher. I mean, people like you don't really want to tell a teacher because why it's just like a feeling that you don't really want to express.
12: When you hear your son say that he's perhaps reluctant to approach a teacher or approach another adult about bad things that are being said or bad things that are potentially being done. Does that highlight for you that perhaps that divide between what the kids are really feeling and what the adults are seeing?
8: When I approach a teacher and when my older son was in middle school, they started treating him badly and looking at my son as if he was the issue. And I think my younger son has learned from that. I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm feeling right now from listening to him that I believe that that's what his feeling is. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't help my brother. Are they going to help me?
12: Obviously, kids can say some pretty awful things to each other. I'm sure you dealt with it as you were growing up. I certainly dealt with it as I was growing up. As a community, do you think that we pay enough mind to the impact that this sort of harassment, negativity, Does to not only the learning environment, but our young people too. What do you think it does to their confidence, their esteem, and what can we do to make it better for them?
8: Parents need to come together and teach their children. First of all, teach your child, don't talk about people. That's the biggest thing because you wouldn't want to be talked about. Mm -hmm. And and for God's sake, tell a child if they hear something, most of the things they hear are rumors. Don't tell other people Mm -hmm. because then you participate in it.
0: That was an Eastern Shore mother and son speaking with Brian Russo about bullying in local schools. You can hear an extended version of this interview by visiting our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, pursuing a parenting dream
12: overseas. If you were thinking of doing an adoption either in the U.S. or in a foreign country, you should weigh the option of having a surrogate.
0: And mining for a mother load of Maryland gold.
4: You can pan gold out of just about every creek that flows into the Potomac River between Washington and Frederick.
0: That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And today we're bringing you some of our favorite stories about motherhood. Or in the case of this next story, a mother load. Of course, there's a lot from California. As we know,
7: California has produced a lot of gold.
0: We're at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in front of the gold exhibit in the Hall of Geology, Gems, and Minerals. Where else do we see this gold coming from? There's Colorado, Alaska... Australia, of course, produces
7: some fabulous gold to this day.
0: And as museum geologist Tim Rose will tell you, back in the day, a place much closer to home produced some pretty fabulous gold, too.
7: See that white quartz that's the matrix for the Montgomery County specimen? Right,
2: right. Yep,
0: that's right, Montgomery County, Maryland, from whence Rose originally hails.
7: Yeah, I grew up in the Gaithersburg area, and as a kid, as a rock hound, you know, we knew about the gold. So, yes, I've been having my eyes to the ground looking for it ever since.
0: See, Montgomery County is on the Piedmont Plateau. That's this belt of metamorphic rocks extending from New York to South Carolina. And the Piedmont has all these veins of quartz running through it.
7: And within some of them, there are little pockets of gold and fool's gold, too.
0: But it was gold, gold that had people in Montgomery County all keyed up back in the 1800s when it was first reported in the area. And as word spread, Tim Rose says people started panning for gold. They
7: found it in streams in upper Montgomery County.
0: And then they started full-blown mining operations, you know, digging trenches and sinking shafts.
7: And everywhere you go in our area here, you look in stream beds, you look in farm fields, you'll find white quartz like that. And someday I'll be looking down, because I'm still looking, (laughs) and I'm going to see the glint... (laughs) and I'm going to pick it up, and I'll go, okay, I can stop looking now.
4: I actually know a guy that was walking along the trail and saw a piece of quartz, and he stopped and picked it up and turned it over, there's a streak of gold throwing through it. So, I mean, you never know what you're going to turn up. Amateur
0: geologist Jeff Nagy is another Montgomery County native who's spent a ton of time with his eyes peeled to the ground.
4: When I was a kid, I'd come home, and my mother would be dumping the rocks out of my pockets and complaining about all the rocks that i'd be picking up
0: now naggy's a proud member of the gem lapidary and mineral society of montgomery county
4: i'm also a member of the baltimore mineral society
0: and today we're continuing his lifelong gold hunt right near great falls as we wander the former site of the maryland mine The gold mine used to be one of the state's largest, longest-lived, and most productive. Is it possible to even estimate or guesstimate the number of mines that once operated in this region? There were probably
4: uh, 20 or 30.
0: Just Montgomery County or also like up near Baltimore and stuff? Montgomery.
4: Nowadays, the site
0: has a lot of ruined buildings...
4: Water tank, the old water tank. Overgrown dump piles. We're walking on part of the dumps right here. You can feel the rocks underneath your feet. (laughs) And scores. There's trenches here. And scores. There's a collapsed shaft. Of abandoned
0: prospect trenches and shafts.
4: This would have been a vertical shaft that was probably 200 feet deep. Look at the big tree growing out of it. So you know that thing is completely caved in. But from 1867 to 1940,
0: Nagy says the Maryland mine was a fairly thriving operation. How
4: big was this mine? They cover 2,200 acres. Part of it's down here in the Park Service. The rest of it's up in River Falls or over this way in those houses and mountains.
0: And that's the thing about so many of Montgomery County's gold mines. They've long been built over with roads or houses. One spot Jeff Nagy and I visited, not too far from the Maryland mine, is now a tree-filled park with benches, tables, even a playground.
4: Yeah, just think the little kids in the playground playing on top of an old mine area. Unless you knew it was here, you would have no idea that anything had taken place here.
0: Nagy's currently updating the Maryland Geological Survey's book, Minerals of the Washington, D.C. Area. He's eager to spread the word about the region's rich history of gold and other minerals, too. Take Patapsco State Park, for instance.
4: West of Baltimore.
0: Between the 1830s and 1940s, Nagy says hundreds of mines in the area were pumping out a bunch of different minerals. Like quartz, flint, soapstone.
4: Feldspar, barrel, mica.
0: Garnet, chromium, copper.
4: A small amount of serpentine, limestone, iron.
0: But back at the Smithsonian's Hall of Geology Gems and Minerals, Tim Rose's eyes are on a different prize. Gold. But again, not just any gold. Gold's found all around the world. And it's also been found in Montgomery County, Maryland. It has.
7: It has. But not by me. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <Yet. laughs>
0: to learn more about gold mining in Montgomery County, Maryland, and to see examples of specimens found in the area, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
11: You mm-hmm.
13: Look at Life's
0: As we continue this week's motherhood show, let's talk about parenting. Now, not only is parenting changing, but so is how people are becoming parents. Jonathan Wilson brings us this story on couples facing fertility issues and how a certain option for conceiving a child may take them halfway around the world.
15: The second floor of Crystal Travis McRae's townhome in Laurel, Maryland is about as full of playtime paraphernalia as a room can get. Crayons, lightsabers, Dora the Explorer dolls, it's all here, and it needs to be. McRae has a four-year-old son, Mark, along with two-year-old twins, Alec and his sister, Elle. Daddy?
3: Yeah, where's Daddy Elle? <laughs> Boy. Where? Where? I don't know, where did we go? I love being a mom. I always wanted to be a mother. It's a lot more work than what I thought. But I really I enjoy it and I'm I'm glad that the kids are here. It's made a huge difference in this part of this journey. Of our lives.
15: But arriving at parenthood wasn't an easy journey for Crystal and her husband Colin. She is 50 and he is 52, and they only started trying after Crystal turned 40. A couple of miscarriages led them to the process of in vitro fertilization, or IVF.
3: I had been pregnant twice, and then I started an IVF protocol, and I didn't like the chemicals, so I decided... But I don't want to do that since we have to use an egg donor anyway.
15: Colin and Crystal next explored adoption and even began taking their county's 27-week adoption class. But they soon discovered that Howard County had few infant children available. Then Crystal remembered an article a friend had sent her about surrogacy in India.
3: So I googled one doctor, sent her an email, and she replied. And I said, OK, well, we'll catch a plane and we'll, we'll see you in two weeks just to see if this is legit. So that, that's where we started.
15: There is little reliable data about international surrogacy and exactly how many couples are using surrogate mothers in other countries to carry their children. But the Council for Responsible Genetics says the market for surrogacy is exploding here in the U.S., with more than 5,000 babies born this way between 2004 and 2008. But if surrogacy is a new area of growth in our country, it's a well-oiled money-making machine in India, where many estimates say surrogacy generates $2.3 billion a year for the Indian economy. Crystal explains how the process
3: worked for her. An embryologist creates the embryos. So we had an egg donor, colon sperm, a seriot. You can pick the egg donor that you want. Some people in the U.S. will bring an egg donor with them or will have eggs shipped, or you can use an Indian egg donor. We use an Indian egg donor and my husband's sperm.
15: The process gave the McCrays what Crystal calls a tri-racial family. Crystal is black, Colin is white, and their children are half Indian and half white. Choosing this international route also ended up being a bargain.
3: It is a lot more expensive here in this area for a, a surrogate. It would, um, it would be about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. In India, you're probably going to, for a singleton birth, you're going to pay about thirty to thirty-five thousand for a singleton birth. But the
15: concept of international surrogacy isn't without controversy. Critics point out that the industry's growth in India has much to do with lax regulation and the absence of legal protection for surrogate mothers. Many also say the future of the industry points to large-scale baby farms in poor countries where women can easily be lured into surrogacy by their $7,000 cut of the fees. Crystal and her husband Colin see it differently.
3: I feel like it's a win-win situation for the surrogate as well as the intended parents. The surrogates, the the amount of money that they make, most will never make that kind of money again in their lifetime. If they make $7,000, that's like hitting the lottery for them.
12: When you give somebody the chance to buy a house who never had a chance to buy a house, uh, it's not a high price to pay.
3: One, two, three,
13: four, five, six, seven,
15: After Mark was born, Crystal and Colin decided he should have a playmate or two. They decided to use the same surrogate once more. They ended up with twins, Elle and Alec. Crystal has become something of an expert for Western couples looking into surrogacy in India. And after advising dozens of families on how to do what she did, she decided she'd like to get paid for her services. She now has a consulting business and travels back and forth quite a bit. Colin says surrogacy should be higher up on the list of options for many families.
12: I think the misunderstanding about it is that it is the bottom of the barrel. You've got to go through every other option before you get to that. I think that's just wrong, and it should be one of the main options that people think about.
15: Though Crystal is often busy answering questions for other prospective parents nowadays, she still has questions about her own path to motherhood. She herself grew up as a foster child, never knowing her biological parents.
3: Sometimes, even in the back of my mind now, I often wonder if I put it off because I was afraid that I would have children that turned out like my biological family members who I didn't know but um, know that that they didn't, weren't in a good place. Alex, draw a circle for me.
15: As for her own children, Mark has already been back to India and understands that he was born there. Crystal says it will be the same for the twins.
3: And as a person who was adopted, I feel like you need to tell the children early on, even though our children were not adopted, but they do need to know how they got here
15: and what a story they'll always have to tell. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
0: As with Jacob and Tara's stories earlier in the show, this piece came to us via the Public Insight Network, or PIN. You can find more information about the Public Insight Network by visiting metroconnection.org PIN. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Arlington Ridge, Virginia, and the Hawthorne neighborhood of Northwest D.C.
6: My name is Marian Beckton. I live in the Hawthorne neighborhood of Chevy Chase, and I am 59 years old. The Hawthorne neighborhood is located in Chevy Chase, D.C. It is north of downtown, and it's bound by Oregon Avenue, Western Avenue, and the Pinehurst Tributary. When I walk outside in Hawthorne, and I do it regularly since I have a dog, a lot of green space, a lot of children, a lot of mature trees, well-managed homes, a lot of people walking, and of course the proximity to the park, so we get to see the park every day. I think Hawthorne represents a really mixed bag, so all kinds of people live here. Uh, there are older retirees here. A lot of new young families have come in the past several years, blue-collar, white-collar. Uh, we have um, every kind of demographic mix, age, every racial mix, very diverse neighborhood. In Hawthorne particularly, there are probably a few things people don't know, but what I really would like people to know is that life in, in the District of Columbia can be very good. It's very pastoral, it's a very clean neighborhood, it's a very neighborly neighborhood, so I think when people think about cities, they think that it's probably so fast-paced and, and not as kind and not as gentle, and this neighborhood is very kind and very gentle.
16: Hi, this is Katie Buck, and I am 53, and I live in the Arlington Ridge neighborhood, which is a part of Arlington County in the south end of Arlington County. We are the closest community to Washington, D.C., to our north. To the east of us is Crystal City, and to the west is 395, and to the south is Alexandria, Virginia. The history of Arlington Ridge is very rich. It dates back to the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. Fort Scott Park was a park during the Civil War where the Union built a fort to protect Washington. The architecture is very mixed in Arlington Ridge. We have a number of homes that are nearing 100 years in age that were built for people to have vacation homes up on the ridge overlooking the Potomac River. And of course, like any community, we've been experiencing a number of renovations occurring as well as some teardowns and new homes being built. I love living in Arlington Ridge because we have great accessibility to Washington, D.C., Alexandria, National Airport, yet we are an old community with strong neighbors and beautiful homes and trees. We heard from Marion Beckton in Hawthorne and Katie Buck in
0: Arlington Ridge. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at WAMU.org. Or you can always send us a tweet. Our handle is at metro, And we have a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. And that is Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Brian Russo, Jonathan Wilson, and Tara Boyle. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll celebrate the start of the new school year with a brand spanking new show on learning. We'll hear how local acting classes have surged in popularity since the recession. And we'll do some learning of our own as we investigate what's been happening in the world of transportation. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.